As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, some of today's biggest tech successes, we're used to hearing stories about how they sprouted up from Silicon Valley, how the founders had Ivy League pedigrees and those founders usually being white men, right? And it feels like this one is gonna be completely different, right? Well, yes and no. Okay, (laughs) Silicon Valley played a giant role. The founders were educated at Ivy League schools and they are two white men. Right, seriously. (laughs) But this is a little different. Okay, so these two founders, they didn't grow up near the valley. Uh, They actually got their start on the other side of the pond, so to speak. They grew up on an island, but not the tropical kind. This island is actually a country and It's one that's known most for its pubs and its hometown beer, a dark, dry stout that even needs a special tap to make the perfect pour. Ah, you must be talking about Guinness then, which is made in 
Ireland. I am, and Guinness is not the product journey that we're talking about, though. No, but let me piece this together. Two brothers from Ireland who made their way to Ivy League institutions and later Silicon Valley. This has to be the Collison brothers, and the product must be Stripe, right? The payment platform that's taken over the internet since it launched in 2010. You've got it. And that product journey of Stripe starts right now. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. Chances are, if you're working in tech in some way, you're well aware of Stripe, the global payment processing platform for e-commerce websites and mobile applications. And even if you've never heard of Stripe, you certainly have benefited from its services as it serves as the payment processing platform behind hundreds of billions of dollars in transactions every year. And while it's now seen as a stalwart, if you will, among Silicon Valley's elite tech companies, 10 years ago, it was just getting started. But we should go back even further than that. Let's go back a couple of decades before that when John and Patrick Collison found themselves growing up in Ireland. Yeah, and that's rural Ireland, okay? I spend a few days in Dublin, Ireland every year, and I love Dublin. But John and Patrick Collison did not grow up in Dublin. They grew up in Drummanir, which is actually a small town of fewer than 150 people located in County Tipperary. Now, my good friend and business partner, Paul, he's from County Tipperary, too. It's an huh. area of the Irish countryside that's dotted with castles and old winding roads. That's not exactly the haven for tech entrepreneurs, I'm guessing. No, not <laughs> at all. Here's Patrick Collison sharing a bit about what it was like growing up as he and his brother, John, chat with Emily Chang in this Bloomberg Studio 1.0 segment. We grew up in the countryside, right? Uh, and so it was like a, a 40 minute drive to, to get to school in the morning. And actually, none of the friends we went to school with lived anywhere close to us. And so kind of when we came, came home from school, we couldn't you know, go and uh, run around and play with them. And so you know, we had to run outside and play with each other. All else there was to do was to, to go and read books. Uh, we, we didn't have the internet, or you know, uh, we didn't get the internet until until I was a teenager. And you kind of got used to when you were sort of browsing these websites or whatever, you know, reading about these products or services. You know, having to kind of scrutinize the fine print. Be like, oh, you know, offer not available in the Republic of Ireland. And so, kind of this sense of sort of staring through the glass at this kind of amazing world and internet out there, but sort of not all of those opportunities being available or equally available or whatever, sort of to again someone in the middle of the countryside in Ireland. And so, you know, in, in the way that sort of Stripe is so focused on kind of global access and expansion of global opportunity and, and kind of all those things. Um, it, this really was not conscious in any way, but sort of now looking back and you know, over the last kind of 20 years of my life, I think in some ways kind of that mindset was instilled by, again, this experience of, of sort of growing up in 1990s Ireland. They stayed in Ireland and were close as brothers. And aside from living together and growing up together, they decided to start to work together too. In 2009, we had, we just started in college, we had been building all sorts of side projects and internet businesses and things like this. Okay, and I should interject here because he makes it sound like they were just sort of dabbling around before college and through college with side hustles. And I'm guessing that's not really the case. Well, it is in a way, but look, before these side projects, they founded a company in Limerick, Ireland that eventually merged with another and when it did, the brothers moved to Silicon Valley. Ultimately, that company was acquired for $5 million. They were both teenagers at the time. John was 17 and Patrick was 19. So 
Anyway, I'll let them continue here. I don't think anyone ever, or certainly in our case, you don't set out to start a huge thing. You don't set out to, set out to, to, to build a large company. You set out to solve a problem, right? And there was this huge disconnect between the fact that all these new internet services and businesses were getting started, smartphones had just arrived, it felt like such a land of opportunity. And then when you actually went to do anything on the, on the business side of things and actually accept money for what you'd built, it's like going back to the 70s. And so I think it was honestly helpful that one, you know, we were definitely young when we started out, and two, that we weren't coming from being industry professionals who had been in the industry for 30 years or anything like that, because you can bring a fresh perspective to it. And, and we started approaching it from the perspective of the people who actually proved to be the most important decision makers of all, which is the software developer who's actually building this stuff. The thing that um, uh, I think led to us dropping out was kind of the realization that what we initially conceived of as being sort of a slightly niche product for developers or something solving a narrow problem or, or something like that uh, was actually, you know, this kind of lake was actually an ocean. Uh, and that the character of the problems we were addressing in terms of what is the, you know, global economic infrastructure for the internet and why is it not possible, you know, even then in 2010 to accept customers, payments, revenue from internet users anywhere in the world. So after the acquisition, eventually both brothers ended up in Boston. John at Harvard, Patrick at MIT. Multi-million dollar acquisitions and Ivy League educations while both still technically teenagers. I think we have a couple of overachievers here. <laughs> But they didn't end up staying in school for long. While still students, they, as entrepreneurs do, started other side projects. And in these side projects, they realized just how difficult it was for online businesses to set themselves up to accept payments online. In order to accept payments, you had to go through all these complicated processes. You'd be signing contracts with companies, faxing documents here, faxing documents there, sending certified mail. It was really complicated. Yeah, and they couldn't figure out why? So ultimately, they started Stripe to try to solve this. Actually, they started Dev Payments. That was Stripe's original name. But yes, they started this company and started really experimenting. At first, they would partner with a payment processor, but then they realized ultimately that the entire experience should be in-house. And so it wasn't long after that partnership that they did bring everything in-house. And after just a few months, they realized they were onto something big. So ultimately, in the fall of 2010, they became the classic tech entrepreneur college dropouts and focused all of their time on Stripe. <laughs> More on what happened after the Collison brothers dropped out of college to focus on building their eventual category-changing company, Stripe, after a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Before the break, we learned about the young Collison brothers from County Tipperary in Ireland and their breakthrough realization that online payments landscape was much too complex. Their company, Stripe, would set out to change that. Once they realized that the opportunity that they had was actually quite a big one, they sought out some funding. And so it just so happened that one of the Collison brothers' previous investors was somebody who was already running this small technology accelerator in the Bay Area. 
That investor, Paul Graham. That accelerator, Y Combinator. Through YC, Graham would invest in Stripe, and they would technically be part of the 2010 Summer at Batch, although they didn't go through the program like the rest of the startups. They did benefit from Graham's connections, though, and just generally being part of the program. And over the course of the next year, they kept their heads down, and they built, and they built, and they built. Yeah, in fact, despite being a part of YC, where a demo day is typically when companies make their flashy launch, Stripe took a while to launch. Uh, here's Patrick Collison giving a talk at Y Combinator talking about those early days. It took us quite a while to launch because we had to get all these kind of banking partnerships in place and so on. And so we didn't launch until September 2011. Uh, we'd been working on it for almost two years at that point. And, uh, and every time we saw PG or really anyone else from YC, uh, all they would ask us is why we had not launched yet. <laughs> Uh, that's PG, Paul Graham. Uh, anyway, back to Patrick. Because uh, it sort of took us to, uh, so long to be able to publicly launch, we're sort of, uh, we tried to be kind of very disciplined about sort of gradually expanding the number of users uh, every month. And so even though we weren't publicly available, uh, we, we, we got our first user, like first production user, just kind of three months in. Uh, and then kind of every month we tried to add at least kind of a handful of users. Uh, and so by the time we publicly launched, uh, we, we, we did have you know, about 100 users, which I mean, Back then to us, seemed, that seemed like a, a big deal. That seemed very, very large. A hundred customers by the time they launched. More investment from important investors like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. The people who literally shaped another important payments company in PayPal, plus other A-list investors like Sequoia Capital and Dreesen Horowitz. And in 2011, Stripe was off to a very strong start. Yeah, in these early days, this methodical approach to building their customer base one by one and truly understanding their needs fully before moving on to the next customer, rather than just opening up the floodgates, it really helped Stripe ensure that they were building something that customers really wanted and needed. And ultimately, this slow approach, it helped them grow, right, much more quickly. In the beginning, this growth was focused on creators, then developers, those tasked with figuring out how to help their online businesses actually collect the payments. Here's John Collison talking about this focus at the Wired Money Conference back in 2013, just two years after their official launch. I think the core thing for Stripe was that we went very directly after the creators. You know, we didn't go after the business folks or the, the managers or anything. We went after the people building websites and building apps. And we said that, you know, this was a market that previously um, had been ignored. Uh, and, uh, and now we're seeing all this kind of movement around. But we went after the people who were uh, like building the apps themselves. And we said that would kind of trickle upwards. And it has. That growth would help them secure two rounds of funding in 2012 first $18 million from Sequoia Capital, and then another $20 million from General Catalyst, they would continue to raise money over the next few years, and lots of it. So many times, in fact, that I'm not going to cover every single round, but we'll come back to funding a little bit later. Aside from raising money during this time, they continued building product, they continued building up their team. And in the next couple of years, they'd start to build partnerships, big partnerships, with names you've heard of, like Lyft and Pinterest, Here's John Collison at an event put on by Fortune back in 2015 talking about these types of partnerships. To take Pinterest, say, what they're doing is the fact that uh, before, Pinterest has so much purchase intent and the experience of actually acting on that, you know, if you're collecting things that you want to buy, going from the, you know, the Pinterest app, Ben was talking about how much of Pinterest usage is on mobile, and then if you actually go to, 
you know, do something with all the stuff you've pinned. You know, you click into the retailer's website and it's loads slowly in Safari and it's kind of janky and it doesn't really work and then you click through seven. Actually, you don't do all this because you just give up halfway through, right? And so they want to make Pinterest work really well for, for, for people. One of the main things people want to do is kind of collect things that they're interested in. Uh, and so the buy button from a product perspective makes, makes total sense. And I think part of this idea with Stripe is that you should not have to go build out everything yourself from scratch. Uh, Stripe should give you all this infrastructure of doing something that, in a way, is pretty complex, right? If you look at buy buttons, you're in a, you know, helping other merchants accept payments, and you're doing so on iOS and Android and maybe web, and there's all this complexity that ties into it. Uh, and, you know, we are not trying to insert you know, Stripe into it. It's not the Stripe buy button. You know, we're not developing a mobile wallet. Uh, what we're doing is helping you know, Pinterest or helping Twitter make a really awesome experience for their customers and pushing them to the forefront. And this is maybe the definition of product-led growth because developers are web users too, developers of other platforms. They'll use Pinterest and see that buy button and they'll wonder to themselves how that's powered, right? So these partnerships, they led to more partnerships. Yeah, and they also led to more transactions because Stripe's business model is set up to take a percentage of every single transaction that's processed, that means more revenue for Stripe. But this revenue, it was coming from U.S. companies. Stripe wasn't really able to open things up beyond the U.S. Uh, because of you know, all sorts of complexities. Yet online commerce doesn't just happen in the United States. It happens everywhere. Uh, those businesses that were outside of the U.S. in places like, say, Egypt or Kenya they'd actually have to fly to the United States, meet with banks, lawyers, accountants, and jump through a giant set of hoops just to get approved to accept payments online. I mean, the process was so complex at that time. And this bothered the Collison brothers. After all, they weren't even from the United States. They wanted to be able to help entrepreneurs trying to get their start back in their homeland and, you know, in other places around the world too. And they heard stories from other entrepreneurs like one of these and they wanted to help. After the revolution here in Egypt, no one was buying anything. It really hurt retail. I saw a great opportunity in terms of all of the products that were just sitting on the shelves in these stores and exporting them, giving these boutiques the opportunity to sell globally. Ever since I was pretty young and I was interested in technology, I had to learn almost everything in English and my community was in Spanish. I started realizing that there was a lot of developers out there that also needed good content in their own language. So we created Platzi to solve this problem. Here in Turkey, recent developments hurt the tourism industry, especially the small mom and pop shops. At Hotel Runner, our typical customers are family-run properties. So we really help them get online, market their property, and actually start selling. Online banking here in Egypt is almost non-existent. It's incredibly frustrating to think that we work on Kotarik day in, day out, but at the end of the day, there are clients that are coming onto the site, they're loving the items that they see, they want to process the payment, but we're not able to accept it. It's impacting the business, it's, it's limiting us. So who were these people? Well, more on them and what Stripe was about to do to help them, right after this quick break to hear from our sponsors. So before the break, we learned of Stripe's continued growth as the online payment infrastructure platform of choice for all sorts of online businesses. This came in the form of organic growth, but also through partnerships with major tech platforms like Lyft, Pinterest, and others. And we also learned that while they were doing well in tackling this big online payments problem, there was another problem that they were well aware of, which hadn't yet been solved, opening up their offerings beyond the United States. 
These stories we started to hear, these were from entrepreneurs running online businesses in other countries, people who couldn't use Stripe quite yet. Well, until now. In 2015, Stripe introduced Atlas, which was a product of theirs that actually allowed startups to register as U.S. corporations. These entrepreneurs we heard from, it would make life much easier for them to begin transacting online. No more flights to the U.S. just to open up a bank account. That video from Stripe itself, and well, here's more from it. When we heard about Atlas, all three founders went just, yes, this is it. We, we, we're going to solve this problem finally. Atlas is going to make it so much easier to accept payments in dollars and different currencies and not have to relocate elsewhere in order to do that. We're always going to have our Egyptian roots, but it's going to put us on the global stage. It will allow us to access uh, world-class banking and financial system, which really wasn't possible in Turkey. We're going to see a revolution of startups coming to the global market, and Atlas could help them from the beginning. Now, I don't need to leave Egypt. I can stay in Cairo with my family, and I can just focus on growing Kotori. We have more than 17,000 hotels in 127 countries. We are hoping that it's going to be a billion-dollar business in the next three years. But for me, it really is not about money. You shouldn't have to be a Silicon Valley insider to start a global company. It's not just Silicon Valley. It's the Silicon Valley of the world. The Silicon Valley of the world. I like that. Yeah. And the world liked it too, <laughs> honestly. In fact, Stripe's launch of Atlas eventually earned the Collisons a call from President Barack Obama, who extended an invitation to join him as part of a delegation to travel to Cuba. The U.S. was looking to improve relations with Cuba, and they were relaxing the restrictions that were once in place. Yeah, could you imagine that, getting a call from President Obama inviting you on a road trip to Cuba? No, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would be. Anyway, uh, Stripe's launch of Atlas was considered to be a success. In fact, they eventually realized that there was demand for the program inside of the United States, too. I mean, not everyone here finds it to be easy to do all the things you need to do to get a business set up. So U.S. residents were actually able to use Stripe Atlas, too, after a while. While the exact figures of how many people used Atlas aren't available, Stripe estimates that one out of every five tech companies that operates as a Delaware C-Corp use Stripe Atlas to get set up, which, that's, that's nuts. Yeah, it is. And after that, well, Stripe continued to innovate. One of the products that launched in 2018 was a product called Stripe Terminal. This was point-of-sale software that would be used with smartphones and other similar handheld devices to accept payments in person. If it sounds like a square reader, well, it's a lot like a square reader, <laughs> and its underlying technology is, is the same, right? This put Stripe up directly against Square, in fact, but it didn't matter that Square had a head start here. Stripe still found customers, like ticketing platform Universe. Lastly, this company called Universe. They're a cloud-based social ticketing platform. They enable their users to sell tickets online, promote and manage those events online. And you can think about this uh, as a platform for food and music and film festival, conferences, fundraisers, anyone that wants to create a live event. They were founded up in Toronto in 2011, and now they have offices across San Francisco, New York, London, and Sydney. In 2015, Universe was actually acquired by Live Nation Ticketmaster, and they now operate as a wholly owned subsidiary focused on that long tail of event producers. They recently used Stripe Terminal in the field at America's largest RV show out in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and they powered mobile ticket sales for walk-ups in addition to powering the online reservations for all of our RV enthusiasts all over the United States. 
That was Devesh Sinapati, a product manager at Stripe, presenting Terminal at the Stripe sessions. Another early customer of Terminal included Glossier, which started as an online-only skin e-commerce website. But Glossier started expanding and offering in-person shopping experiences and used Stripe Terminal to help them do that. And hey, they haven't stopped there. They've partnered with companies like MasterCard and Visa to begin offering the ability for companies to issue their own credit cards. They've even ventured into lending, offering loans and credit cards to business in the United States. Getting into the lending business, that must mean that they've got a lot of money to cover it at this point. Yeah, that would be an understatement. All right, so remember when I mentioned that they raised a modest $2 million seed round back in 2011? <laughs> they would mm -hmm. go on to raise $1.6 billion in the time since. Wow. Their latest funding round placed a $35 billion valuation on Stripe making it one of the heftiest tech companies in the financial services space. And it made the Collison brothers, yeah, a few dollars too. <laughs> yeah, it made them a lot more than that. The Collison brothers became the youngest self-made billionaires. And right now, they're among the richest people in all of Ireland. And as a company, they earn some recognition too. In fact, this year, Stripe was named the very top company on CNBC's Disruptor 50 list. Welcome back to Squawk Box, the payment processing software company, Stripe, earning the top spot on this this year's CNBC Disruptor 50 list, the most valued startup in Silicon Valley, has made the list now six times in the last eight years. In this post-COVID world, Stripe has really continued to flourish. I mean, it may be because people are shopping inside of stores less and shopping online more. Or maybe because, well, the Collison brothers have built a very special company that's solving a very big problem at the right time. Now, there were talks earlier this year that Stripe would IPO and... Whether that was their official plan or not, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, at least not in the next couple of months, uh, as analysts expected, but it's probably going to happen pretty soon. And I will be making a call to my financial prep, and <laughs> I'll probably be making a call to my financial planner when it does. And while that brings us to today, Stripe would argue that a story is probably just in chapter one, it's just the beginning of a very, very long story. We'll end today's episode with this video from Stripe itself here is Patrick Collison. I think people don't realize how early we still are in building the internet economy. The most important problems that Stripe will ever have to solve are yet to be solved. Because we're building infrastructure, the change cycles are much longer. It's gonna take two decades, three decades for that deployment to fully happen. We have to be much more long-term thinkers. The kind of people drawn to Stripe see that as an advantage, who want to be sort of down in the basement, tinkering with the machinery, such that second, third, fourth, fifth order effects, 20 years out, are going to be enormous in magnitude. I think Stripe has already made an incredible impact. 20 years down the road, who knows what else Stripe will be up to. Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad-free feed. All you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash Rocketship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad-free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people. Product Collective is also the home of industry, the product conference, industry virtual workshops, and one of the largest Slack groups for product people anywhere. And we're also on the Podglomerate Network, so a huge thanks to Podglomerate. You can listen to all the Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. We'll see you here next week on Rocketship.fm.